Morning, everyone. Morning. It really was um, very cold this morning, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And I have a funny feeling that some people found it a little bit hard to get up this morning <laughs> just because it was so cold. Um, but it's, it's good to see you all here. Um, and I'd really like to pray as we um, continue in God's word today. Father, we just want to thank you and praise you so much for the word that you give us. We thank you that it is good and true. Um, Lord, we thank you that you speak to our hearts by your spirit through your word. Um, and Father, I just really want to pray for each of us this morning. Lord, um, you know where we are, where we are at um, in our life, in our relationship with you. You know the things that are troubling us, the things that are distracting us, the things that feel really important to us right now. And Father, I pray that we would be able, um, Lord, to see that all of the things, all the things that are troubling us, that feel important, that are distracting us, we can give to you. Um, and Lord, we pray that you would use um, this time, use your words um, and by your spirit that you would speak to us, soften our hearts, Lord. Open our ears that we would listen to what your spirit is saying. Jesus, I pray that you would um, use everything that you can this morning. Lord, to help us to come to you. Help us, Lord, to turn away from the things that are not you. And to hear your words of truth and love. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we are back in Revelation this morning. Um, and if you've been paying attention, we're going through the seven letters that we find in Revelation in chapters two and three. So this year we won't be covering all of Revelation, just these two chapters. Um, because, you know, Revelation is one of those books that seems to be paid either no attention or way too much of the wrong sort of attention. Uh, we seem to swing between those two extremes. Um, and I can understand why, right? It's full of these incredible images that feel kind of difficult to understand and interpret. Um, and because the meaning doesn't seem plain, you know, we're like, I need help. And that's fine. We can get help. But sometimes what happens is that uh, the pictures are over-interpreted um, and we try to put on them our own human understanding. Uh, we try to interpret it according to the things that we see around us um, instead of what the Bible is actually saying. So a lot of what we see in Revelation we find um, actually echoes, more than echoes, of what we find in the Old Testament. Um, and because and I say this of myself too, we don't know the Old Testament as well as we could or should. Um, these things seem completely new to us when we encounter them in Revelation. Um, so the letters are part of Revelation that you may have heard preached on before, um, but they have less of that kind of, um, that sort of picture that you, might have, that you might find a little bit confusing to interpret. Because um, what Revelation is, it's, it's a letter, it was written by John, and it's written in a genre 
called the apocalyptic genre. Genre. Genre? G-E-N-R-E. So there's, there's things like there's poetry, there's... Um, in the Bible, you know, we find there's, there's poetry, there's history, there's all sorts of different ways in which um, the different books of the Bible are written. And this particular one is called the apocalyptic genre. Um, now, you'll find similar things in Daniel and Ezekiel. Um, and, but actually, this sort of thing is not really what we're used to reading or seeing apart from in fiction. Um, what this is, is a way to convey big truths in big and memorable ways that are going to capture our imaginations, capture our hearts, um, that will draw us into wanting to understand the truth, wanting to sort of, so that we have this big picture of what's going on, so that we can actually be focused on that and be drawn into it. So what John is doing is he's describing these huge truths in ways that he is, he's seeing, but maybe they are ways in which it's hard to describe. Um, and so sometimes what we see, if we're trying to like actually make sense of what he's doing, like you try to draw a picture from it, it doesn't quite make sense, but the truth, the truth is still in there. You see, by the time that Jesus gives him this vision, John was old and he was in exile. And he had suffered a lot of hardship and persecution in following Jesus. Um, but unlike the other disciples who had been with Jesus, he was still alive. You see, they, they were all, they, they'd all died. Um, God's people the church was moving into a time where their leaders, the main leaders of the church, were no longer going to be people who actually spent time with the Jesus who was walking around on this earth. All right? they, were, they were transitioning into a new period. And it was also a time where there was intense persecution and hardship um, that the church was facing. And so... This is so gracious of Jesus because what he does here is that he speaks these words through John but directly to the churches to encourage them, to warn them, to rebuke them and to give them these pictures, these images of truth that will capture their hearts and their minds so that they will have something real, tangible almost to focus on as they go through the intense persecution and suffering that they are going through and that they will go through. You see, there, there is a battle and there is hardship and persecution for God's people. But the truth is that God is sovereign. That means he is in control. He is sovereign over all of it and the victory, his victory, is secure. And that means that the victory of God's people, that rest for God's people, that home for God's people, is absolutely secure. It is a sure and certain hope. 
See, because like, we, we live in this world, right? And it may seem, even right now, that the chair that you are sitting on is more real than the hope that we have in Christ. Because like, it's supporting your weight, you're sitting there, you can feel it, you can touch it, it's, it's there. And sometimes it, it doesn't, you know, that, that promised future is something that we just can't quite grab a hold of. But what I'd like for us to do this morning is to, is to allow Jesus to speak to us of what that hope is, that it is something that we can grasp onto with our hearts and with our minds and that will pull us from the things that seem more real around us into what is true reality. That is where Jesus is pointing us now. Because anything, anything that is not sustained, supported, or empowered by God will fail. And it does not matter how good or useful it seems. It doesn't matter how powerful or wise or important it appears And it does not matter how solid or permanent it looks. If God is not its foundation, is not its sustenance, is not its power or its support, it will fall. And that is what happened with the Roman Empire that persecuted these Christians so intensely. And it is what will happen in every situation case, difficulty in your life right now. So here we come to this third letter that Jesus asks John to write to the church in Pergamum. And it's this ancient city that is now in ruins. But it was significant in its time. And it was a city in Turkey. In that city there was the first temple that was built to worship the emperor. That's one of its claims to fame, to importance. It was also the center for the worship of the God of healing. So in this city was the emperor and health. I mean, that's, that's a lot of um, what we even look for at the moment, isn't it? We want power and we want health because if our body wastes away, that power is meaningless, isn't it? But in this city, in this culture, adding another temple, another God into the mix actually wasn't a problem. So if you wanted to just add Jesus, you could. But Caesar is... Lord. You couldn't say that Jesus is Lord. He could be one of the many, but he could not be the one. So in this place, in this time, ultimate allegiance was owed to the Roman emperor. And a lot of the activity of the city, the commerce of the city, centered around emperor worship. This is where people met socially. This is where people met to, to, um, to do business. 
and anyone who didn't participate was on the outside. They stuck out. They were socially and commercially ostracized, economically ostracized. And they were being disloyal to the emperor who held the power of life and death. I think most of us have probably not been in a situation where somebody really holds the power of life and death over us. And many of us, I think, have not had to choose between being a Christian and being a member of society, like a a part of society or a member of, um, or being able to get a job or to participate in trade. Most of us have not felt that kind of pull. But this is what the Christians in Pergamum faced. And Jesus commends them because they stand firm under intense persecution, even to the point of death. That's what we see in the first part of this letter. This city was not just like any other city. Jesus says that this is a spiritual stronghold for Satan. It's not only that Satan lives there, he has his throne there. Now, unlike God, very much unlike God, Satan is not everywhere all at once. Okay? That's only reserved for God. Satan is limited as to where he can be. But for these Christians, Satan's power and their presence and his presence was very near. But even where Satan has his throne, even where the emperor is worshipped, even where people go to be healed, it is God who is ultimately in charge. He is the one who has authority. He holds the sharp, double-edged sword, which is a symbol not only of authority but of judgment. He is actually the one who holds the power over life and death and all else that comes with it. And here is the word of truth that Jesus speaks to this church. It may seem as though, it may seem as though Caesar holds your life in his hands. It may appear that demonic forces and even Satan himself has mastery over your city. But I know where you live. I see you. I see what is happening to you and around you. I see what Satan is doing. But I am the ultimate judge of all. I stand in authority both over Caesar and Satan. They will both fall. They will fail. It can seem, it can seem like evil forces, corruption, governments, the rich, the powerful, that they have the upper hand in this world and that they control all the things that are happening and, and that we are helpless and hopeless in that situation. But it is simply not true. No matter how dark circumstances may seem, God knows and he is still in control of all because he is sovereign. But I want you to notice something. 
that God is sovereign, but he doesn't stop the persecution that is happening to the Christians. He doesn't come in and say, well, I'm, I'm in control of all of these things, so I'm going to take you out of all that is hard, or I'm going to make them stop all that they're doing to you. He doesn't. Whilst they are still under fire to remain true to the name of Jesus, Jesus doesn't send comfort to them by stopping their suffering. He comforts them by reminding them that he is judge of all the earth. But why wouldn't Jesus show his authority and power by smashing down the Roman Empire or pulling the Christians out, finally defeating Satan right there and then? Surely this would be the right response. Isn't this what we would ask that God do? Isn't this what we would do in that situation? You know, when I was younger in my faith, um, I very much preferred to believe that God was not in control of the evil in this world because it meant that I didn't have to answer that terrible question of why he would allow it to continue. But actually, it is a terrifying thought that there is, if there is nobody, including God, in control of all the evil in this world, it is much more terrifying than if he is. Because that would be a world of chaos. That would be a world where there is no security, where there is no hope, where there is nothing that you could rely on to change what is going on, that there would be no guarantee that anything was ever going to get any better. You see, what we learn and see in the Bible is that the perfect love and wisdom of God exerts his perfect power at exactly the right time and in exactly the right way. He limits Satan's power. He sets boundaries over all the earth, over us, over all events for all times and places. And those boundaries don't always mean that the, that the suffering stops in the moment that you want it to. How does that sit with you? Is hard. It is not an easy truth to accept. Because in my heart, I know, I'm like, I would not do it that way. And in my heart, I think, my way is better. But if I am truly honest with myself, if I was even to look back on the last 24 hours of decision-making in my own life, I have to admit that I cannot be trusted to make consistently good and wise decisions even over that short period of time for just myself. 
there is so much knowledge, let alone wisdom, that I do not have. And if the God of the Bible really does exist, if he does, then I am in no position to stand over him as judge. Church, Jesus told us that this world is not our home and that those of us who follow him can expect to face persecution and hardship. Church, he he never promised, he never promised that we would lead a life in this world where everything would work out just how we wanted to, where all of our dreams would come true, where we would be able to be whatever it is that we want to be. He never promised that. In his perfect wisdom and love, Jesus promises us hardship and persecution in this world. And he warned us, he warns us that we would lose houses and land and family as we follow him. I wonder whether we have made this world too much our home too much our place of security, too much our hope? Are we too comfortable here? And do we end up spending our time protecting and building up our houses and land and families at the expense of actually living a life that is faithful to Jesus. You see what happens to this church in Pergamum. When faced with a clear choice to renounce their faith in Jesus, they held true. Right? And Jesus com- rightly commends them for that. Because it is not a small thing to do that when your life is ex- at stake. But when faced with making that continual choice day to day of living, not of dying, but of living as Jesus asked them to, they compromised. You see, there were these people who were teaching wrong things about how God wants us to live in this church. Not, not in this church, in the Pergamum church. Now, Jesus doesn't say that everybody was caught up in it, but they tolerated it. They had not called it out. They had not rejected it as false teaching. You know what? Sometimes we get this idea that being a Christian is just about having a relationship with Jesus. Don't worry about all of that stuff, the, the doctrine stuff about what you believe and what the Bible says, because you, you just need to have a, a relationship with Jesus and like he loves you and that's great. It is about having a relationship with Jesus. But I wonder when is the last time you had a relationship with anybody where you had no idea who they were, where you didn't care what they said, what they liked, 
where you just ignored everything that they ever said to you. And how good was that relationship? It's a, that, that's not a good relationship, in case you were wondering. You cannot be in a meaningful relationship with anyone if you don't care who they are or what they like or what they say. And if that is the way in human relationships, it is infinitely more so in our relationship with God. And so it's important that we know and grow in our knowledge of what God has said and is saying to us in his living word. So that when we hear things that are wrong, when we hear others coming to conclusions about Jesus that that aren't right, we can identify it. When we hear things that go against what the Bible teaches about God and about what he says and about what he loves, we need to help others to come to a correct understanding. But we're not going to be able to do that if we don't know what it is ourselves. Now, there are, of course, different ways in which to handle the correction. depends on the situation. There will always need to be grace and gentleness and patience as we do that. But we must identify and call out when people are saying and doing things that are contrary to God's will. We cannot simply let it go when we find other Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, contradicting what God says. It's not good for them to continue to believe and to live out a lie. And it is not good for anyone else who might believe that lie along with them. There is no time, even in intense persecution, when it is okay to allow people to believe lies about God. So now we come to what that lie was. He refers to Balaam, and we find Balaam's story in Numbers, your favorite book of the Bible, 22 to 25 and 31. These are story parts of Numbers. They exist in Numbers. They're not all Numbers in Numbers. Anyway, so what we find very briefly in this story is that there's this king, the king of Moab. They were enemies of Israel, and he wanted to curse the Israelites. And so he calls this guy called Balaam, and he asks him to curse Israel. He doesn't just ask, ask him, he pays him to do that, to speak curses over Israel, prophetic curses. And Balaam tries really hard. He accepts the money and he tries to curse Israel. But all that comes out of his mouth are blessings over Israel. But he didn't stop there. If God wasn't going to allow Balaam to directly curse the Israelites with his mouth, he was going to find another way. And that way was to lead them into sin, to tempt them away from God. 
And so a number of them did. They were tempted away from God to participate in the religious practices of one of the nations around them. And those involved died for their sin. They were cursed in the end. You see, the whispered temptation of Balaam, what seduces and entices us, you can be like the people around you. You can do what they do. You can value what they value. You can live comfortably like they do. You can have fun like they do. You don't need to be different. Now remember the situation of the Christians in Pergamum because they are social and economic outcasts because they refuse to do what? To participate in emperor worship. This was the way into belonging in that community, into working in that community. You see, to be a tradesperson, you had to be a member of the trade guild. And to be a member of the trade guild, you had to participate in emperor worship. Without membership, you were left out in the cold to eke out whatever existence that you could in poorer paid work, unable to use your skills. Now, it would be enticing, wouldn't it? Just to go along with it all. Because surely, surely God would not want you and your family to suffer like this. Surely God would not want you to feel frustrated in your work or to be unable to provide. Because actually, you know, right? You know that the emperor isn't really God. And so surely it doesn't matter to just go along with it and do some of the rituals anyway. Because what it'll mean is that you will find acceptance in your community. What it'll mean is that you will be able to find the security that work brings. What it'll mean is that you can look like everybody else. Because everyone else is doing it. But everyone else goes out after work and gets drunk. That's how we network. Everyone else spends that sort of money on clothes. They won't take me seriously if I don't dress like them. But everyone else sends their kids to those schools. And I need to set up my kids for success. Pergamum is where Satan has his throne. And it seemed that some in the church wanted to make themselves acceptable and at home in that place. So I ask you, where is it that you are making your home? Where is it that you are trying to find acceptance? Where are you trying to build security and to find hope? There are so many ways in which we try to find stability and acceptance by doing what everyone else is doing. And there are ways 
in which we will have to pay a price if we don't do what everyone else is doing. It might be that we get a funny look. It might be that people don't really want to hang out with us anymore. It might be that we actually do miss out on a promotion at work. There may be certain types of work or entertainment activity that we, we just find are out of bounds because they are not aligned to what Jesus says is good. And friends, we need to be able and courageous to call each other out when we see that acceptance in our lives of what is essentially a lie. That hope and security and blessing is to be found in the things of this world and not in God. There's no being quiet to keep the peace. There's no out to avoid an awkward or difficult conversation. You see, Jesus comes as a judge not only of the world, but over his church. And he will judge us against his words of truth. He will cut down every lie. And if your foundation, if your stability is built on a lie, built on anything except the truth of Jesus, it will be cut down also. Jesus says, repent. Turn away from those lies. Turn away from the world and turn back. Turn back to him and to his truth. Repent whilst you can. The Spirit says to his church, open your heart. Soften your heart. To hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what the Spirit is saying to you. The world holds out these promises, doesn't it? And they are so enticing because they are right there in front of us. We feel like we can just grab them and everything else will be okay. But they are poison. What God holds out to us, his promises, they are true and good and will not fail. To those who are faithful to him, he will satisfy their deepest spiritual hunger with manna. He will judge them innocent with a white stone and he will give them a new identity, their true identity. In this world, we spend so much time trying to figure out and get all the things that we need. You know, we might start off with food and water or just basic kind of necessities of life. And we say, well, we we need relationship. We need purpose. But then there are these people that we love now and we need to make sure that they have everything that we need. We also need to relax and we need safety. 
and we need to, we, we need, we need, we need. And as we go on in life, we find that that list of needs doesn't stop. It's endless. And so much of our pursuit of economic stability and social acceptance is driven by pursuit of those needs. But Jesus says, I will give you the hidden manna. In me, you will finally find an end to the grind and the unmet longing. You will finally find satisfaction in me. And we look into our hearts and we see that there is so much that is wrong in us, so much that we want to hide from ourselves and from other people. Because we know that if anyone really saw all that is in us, they would reject us. And so we spend energy spinning, making ourselves seem better than we are, minimizing our faults or just wiping them out altogether. Finding ways to justify ourselves. But at the same time, trying to find a way to actually be fully known and fully loved. It doesn't work. Jesus says, I will give you a white stone and you will find justification and acceptance. You will be truly known and acceptable. You will be truly loved. Finally, the weight of guilt and shame will be lifted in me. And Jesus says, I will give you a new name. I will show you and release you finally to be the person that I always intended for you to be. No longer weighed down by sin or by unfair expectations, or by bad relationships, you will finally know what it means to be valued as you should be. And you will finally know what it means to have been made in the image of God as you see yourself reflected truly in his image. This is the promise of the sovereign judge of all the earth. It cannot be taken away by society or government or even Satan himself. But we must repent and hold true to our Savior Jesus. Put the true reality of Jesus and his promises before you every day. And let your heart and your mind be captured. Let your spiritual imagination grow and run towards him as you soak yourself in his reality. And as you do that, the small things, the weak things that can seem so important in this world will crumble and fall before our sovereign and loving God in whom we find life. 
Let me pray. Father, we just want to thank you that you are the God of all the earth, that you are the God who is over us and in us and through us. We thank you that you have called us by name. Lord, we thank you that in you there is no condemnation, there is no judgment, that you are the one who justifies us and who will bring us to glory. But God, you know that there are so many things, so many things that capture our imaginations on this earth. So many things that distract us from you that we find hope and life in here. But Lord, they are not real. They are not things that will ultimately satisfy. And Father, I pray, Lord, for each of us that you would show us the ways in which these things that we chase after are worthless, are meaningless. And that we can only find true life in you. Show us, God. Thank you, Pastor Joe. Church, why don't we stand and sing the closing song together about being